Welcome to the nose. This is Colin. Our theme today, we don't always have a theme. We, we might not even have a theme today, but I think the Papulian through line is writers. We're going to talk about a movie about the writer Herman Mankiewicz. It's called Mank. Gary Oldman plays this real-life writer, the person probably most responsible for the brilliance of the Citizen Kane script, but a much more complicated fellow than that. And then we're going to talk about a movie that I just I think it was doomed by its bad writing, and that is the revived version of Godfather 3. It has a new title, some new editing, and lots of the same old problems as far as I'm concerned. But the panel may feel differently. That's why we do the nose. Welcome, welcome to the nose. This is kind of an unusual nose. I mean, it's not that unusual, but we're going to talk about two movies. Um, each one with roots in the past. Uh, and I'm laughing because the, the first movie, uh, Mank, is the story of Herman Mankiewicz and the creation of Citizen Kane. So that takes place in the early 1930s um, and, uh, well, and, and sort of thereabouts. Uh, and then we're also going to talk about the re-edited version of Godfather 3, which has not only been re-edited, but given a title that I really cannot consistently remember. <laughs> I think it's Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone. Is that what it's called? I, I Literally, the title is, you know, so brain stupefying that I can't even remember. I can't even. It would be bad, bad marketing. The branding meeting uh, was all wrong there. So uh, we are thrilled to have with us uh, some of our favorite panelists. Tanisha Dugan, a producing associate at TheaterWorks. She joins us via Skype. James Hanley is co-founder at Cine Studio uh, at Trinity College. Uh, and making his second appearance on our show, the first appearance on The Nose, uh, somebody who we found to be a delightful and insightful company when we were doing a show about Ted Williams, about whom he had made an American Masters documentary. Nick Davis is joining us, a filmmaker and the author of Competing with Idiots, Herman and Joe Mankiewicz, a dual portrait, uh, which comes out next summer. So Herman Mankiewicz, uh, who is played by Gary Oldman and who is their, the titular character in this film, Mank Herman, Mankiewicz, Herman Mankiewicz would have been Nick's uh, grandfather, if I have everything correct here. So before we get them started on this, let's uh, hear a little scene from the show. You're going to hear uh, Sam Troughton, if I'm saying that name correctly, as John Hausman, uh, Gary Oldman as Herman Mankiewicz. So the, the setup here basically is that uh, Herman Mankiewicz has uh, been drafted by Orson Welles. He is Orson Welles' only choice uh, to work on the screenplay of Citizen Kane. But as fate would have it, Mankiewicz uh, has been in a car accident uh, that has, uh, in fact, rendered him mostly immobile. He's It's like a scene out of misery or something. He's uh, in a, a bed. He's confined to a bed uh, in a ranch house. Uh, somewhere on uh, the outskirts of, of L.A., I presume. Uh, and he is attended to by both uh, a secretary uh, and uh, a German uh, woman who's sort of a factotum in other ways. Uh, and he's trying to write this screenplay, and he's also uh, not being allowed access to alcohol, which has been lubricated, lubricating his creative process for a very long time. All right, enough setup. Here's what that sounds like. 
Of course, the writing is first rate, but you know that. His lust for power, your exquisite evocation of his hunger for love from those who fear his worst side. But the dreaded yet foreseeable past. You're asking a lot of a motion picture audience. All in all, it's a bit of a jumble. Did you say jumble or jungle? A hodgepodge of talky episodes, a collection of fragments that leap around in time like Mexican jumping beans. Welcome to my mind, old son. The story is so scattered, I'm afraid one will need a roadmap. You mean it's a mess? Would you consider simplifying? As Pascal once said, if only I'd had more time, I would have written a shorter letter. All I am saying is no one can write like that. But I can write like that, Houseman. I have. The narrative is one big circle like a cinnamon roll, not a straight line pointing to the nearest exit. You cannot capture a man's entire life in two hours. All you can hope is to leave the impression of one. But nobody expects Shakespeare. People aren't spending their hard-earned 25 cents to see Macbeth. So, um, you know, Nick, I'm going to have you get us started here. Um, this is obviously a movie close to your heart, and we ordinarily don't ask people who have such close ties to the subject matter uh, to be on the nose, A, because they probably would say no, uh, and second of all, uh, because uh, most of us are sort of dispassionate panelists. But I, I would really be fascinated to know not only what you think of this movie, but maybe before you say that, what you think this movie is about? Because I think that's sort of an open question. Is it about the somewhat debated mystery about who really wrote Citizen Kane? Uh, is it about the politics of, of Hollywood uh, in the 1930s? Uh, is it, uh, well, what do you, what, what do you, what would you say the movie's about? Well, I, I, Yes. First of all, I'm delighted to be here and thank you for inviting someone who's so weirdly related to this movie without having anything to do with the movie. Um, I I think this movie is um, sort of, it is, what it hopes to be is, it is to Herman Mankiewicz's life what Citizen Kane was to William Randolph Hearst's life, which is to say a work of art that is a meditation on this guy and what he meant, if he meant anything. And it's sort of using that as a jumping off point for a kind of essayistic, artistic, you know, portrayal of the times and Hollywood and, and art and commerce and selling your soul. And um, I, I love the fact of this movie more than I can say. I mean, who wouldn't want a movie made about, you know, your grandfather? Um, and, and, and as to what I think of the movie, uh, I, 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 the answer is yes. I think of this movie. If someone, <laughs> if someone came to me and said, oh my God, this is, this movie is, there's, it's such a mess. It is, it, it's a Mexican jumping bean. It jumps all over the place. Um, and it, 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 there's so many things wrong that it gets wrong. And, and for a movie that's sort of trying to be so authentic, it gets things wrong. It puts things in the wrong years and, and and certain scenes are just like cringeworthy and just embarrassing. I would say yes, I agree with you. But if someone said, "My God, what a masterpiece!" It, it's it's an evocation and and loving and warm, and what a portrait of of a, of an artistic soul. It's it's brilliant. I would say yes, yes, I agree with that too. I can so see the blurb. I, I can see the blurb now. I think of this movie, Nick Davis, <laughs> The Guardian. Right. Um, right. So so Tanisha, I one thing that I. Um, realized i, I kind of went back and watched the movie I, I, I as much of the movie as i could a second time time permitting 
And I realized that one thing that helped me a little bit is understanding better outside the movie who Herman Mankiewicz really was. I did a little bit of reading about him. And I sort of wonder, for you might be in the same boat as I was, maybe not knowing a huge amount about this guy. And I'm wondering how that affected your relationship with what you did see in the movie. Well, two things. One, I actually absolutely feel like I need to watch it again. Um, and that has been sticking in my mind since I watched the first time because I actually don't feel like I quite got the man, yeah. um, which, which is why I find it really fascinating, Nick, that as somebody who knew the man, that you feel like there's there's a kind of a loving um, homage being paid to him in this. And I, and, I, and I can't quite tell if I was distracted by the sort of fincheriness of it all <laughs> that made it hard for me to, to see in. Um, but, I, but I think my, my answer is no, I don't feel any uh, more. Uh, I don't feel like I, I know the man more. I think I understand um, Hollywood politics and, and the way in which sort of Hollywood um, artists sometimes try to overplay their ability to affect something. Um, I think that's that's maybe and then just there's a lot of drinking. Yes. <laughs> that's, when you watch it again, when you watch it again, Tanisha, get really hammered. Uh, you know, well, I felt like I was perhaps hammered <laughs> as I was watching it because I was like, I feel like I'm having an out of body. Why am I not? Um, why am I not connecting in? Why am I not getting into this? Yeah. Um, I felt very much like an outside observer, which is, I think, why I didn't connect. But it's been lingering because I feel like I. Watch it again. I, like I, I would say watch it again. I enjoyed it a lot more the second time. So, James, I could ask you some pointed question, but I think I'm just sort of just generally interested to know how you're feeling about this. Well, I have to say um, my uh, favorite part of it, I, I do agree with Tanisha about watching it a second time. I also agree with Nick that uh, about the Mexican jumping bean quality. Of it. I think that's an excellent description. Um, I saw it in the dark on a big screen, uh, you can guess where, mm. um, this past Sunday at Sony Studio. And it was such a delight to watch that film in particular at this particular juncture. Um, it, it was something I found a very entertaining film. And I must say, uh, having read a lot of the books around the various characters, I realize that there's all kinds of like this Mexican jumping bean quality of the what's true and what's not. But I yes. overall, I have to say what struck me about it was the entertaining film itself and the performances, which were it, and actually the, I might have a couple of criticisms about the style of the black and white. But I love that it was in black and white on a wide screen. And um, it was a very satisfying film to watch. But it really, uh, I don't think I have any illusions that of, a, of sort of truth about everything that's in it. And it made me think about sort of a lot of these things about how now that the sophistication of um, image manipulation has now reached movies to such a degree that um, the, the, there are characters in danger of being converted from live people to avatars in a live movie. And so I think one of the things is that um, I'm beginning to think of movies differently now, movies that come out that tell a story that you can't possibly assume that everything in here is true. You can get a sort of flavor of what was going on and enjoy it as an entertainment, but you can't see truth in it. And um, there's all kinds of uh, examples of that popping up now. But the particular nature of the background to Citizen Kane 
and uh, and Herman Mankiewicz and the relationship with Hollywood and bringing in politics into the film. It was all very satisfying to see, but I have a feeling that uh, I'm going to find out all kinds of stuff watching it a second time and looking up some of the real facts. But then again, I'm beginning to worry about where we're getting the real facts. Mm. So, yeah, I, I want to have Nick respond to that. I, I think maybe it's important to say, and one thing that I, I didn't fully grasp the first time through, although I don't know why I, I didn't know this, uh, but sort of in the world of New York in the 1930s and the Algonquin Roundtable and all these kind of terrific, sharp-edged MacArthur and Hecht uh, and uh, S.J. Perelman uh, and uh, and all these, you know, really just oh, George S. Kaufman. They all thought Herman Mankiewicz was like the funniest guy in New York in their scene. They thought he was just this kind of elegant and exemplary wit. He went out to L.A. where the money was, and then he started bringing them out. And and that is all drawn up for you in, in the movie. Uh, and you see uh, everybody that I just mentioned, I think. Um, uh, you see them in writer's rooms and stuff like that, uh, kind of goofing around. Uh, I, I don't think I quite understood the way that Mankiewicz was regarded by all these people, you know, is, is really kind of a, a genius, a comic genius, a, a writer, writerly genius. But I, so Nick, I also want to try out on you my idea, which you know from our communications before the show. I sort of think that David Fincher always makes a horror movie. Whatever it is, it's a horror movie. And this, to me, from the very beginning, looks like a horror movie filmed at a creepy ranch with lots of weird, dark shadows and cars pulling up in the middle of the night. And a guy's essentially strapped to the bed, like he's some kind of Frankenstein project, uh, you know. And then he goes to these just weird, dreadful parties at San Simeon, which couldn't be made to look more creepy. <laughs> and I, so I feel like I'm watching this kind of gentle, nice, poetic, drunk, Mercutio kind of guy walking yeah. around in this just horror movie of just dreadful people. I don't know. Am I, am I reading this wrong? I don't think so. No, I think that's potentially very accurate. But I also think it's a it's it's very much like Citizen Kane, which begins with the dark, mm -hmm. ominous castle at Xanadu where where Kane is on his deathbed, which is, you know, when you watch the opening of Young Frankenstein, it's like, yeah, this is that's the same thing. It's it is. It's like a horror movie. So I know I think that's a really interesting point, Colin. So I want to play another clip here uh, to set this up. So, I mean, a lot of this movie, as I think Tanisha was suggesting, there's a lot of politics in the movie. In the 1934 gubernatorial election in California plays a big role, Upton Sinclair. Uh, but it's also the 30s, and the world, including America, is about to deal with another incipient horror. Let's listen to the folks at San Simeon or Xanadu or wherever the hell we are talk about that. Well, enough about Nazis. Irving, tell us about your travels. Where were you? Uh, Berlin, in fact. But it was quite interesting. Thugs in brown shirts, goose-stepping past our hotel all night, screaming anti-Semitic slogans. I was terrified the whole time. This Hitler sounds like an outer trip. Shouldn't the United States do something, Mr. Tugwell? We are weighing all options. Can't last. Who in the world takes a lunatic like that seriously? Well, the last time I looked, 40 million Germans. <laughs> Mag, you're always so wonderfully contrary. Chess and Sanburns der Coffee. Can 40 million Nazis all be wrong? I just read they've opened their first concentration cans and started burning books. What's next? Movies? Is that true, Irving? Yes, I'll be. Uh, Hitler Schmidler. 
You don't turn your back on a market as big as Germany. Please, it's upsetting enough Marion has to endure the man in What's Newsreel. That? Concentration Fascinating. Camp. Those people adore him. So, uh, to me, well, I, Tanisha, I'm just going to have you react to this clip. These are the people who are going to be creating popular culture, which will inform the sensibilities of America. At the moment, except for Herman Mankiewicz and Marion Davies, you know, who's regarded as kind of a beautiful idiot among the rest of this crowd, uh, the rest of them seem not to get what's happening. Competing with idiots, as Nick would say in his book. <laughs> you know, I, Thank you, I have to say, it's been really delightful to listen to these clips because one of the things, and I will get to your question in a second. One of the things that I think was hard for me is that I wish I saw the, the movie with James at the theater because he is trying to play with, with sound like a, old movie. And if you are not well equipped uh, to receive the sound in that way, it the sound also sounds distant and muffled and far away. So this has actually been really um, delightful to hear because I'm hearing it clearer than I could um, through my television uh, setup. Mr. McCullough, I just want to tell you, Mr. McPants would like you to know that it's in mono, I mean, which we don't really hear very much anymore. I think it, it's shot kind of in the sound imprint probably uh, of the time, as you're suggesting. Anyway, continue. Jonathan, I love your wonky, nerdy self. <laughs> Thank you. <for> <laughs> um, you know, that clip, I was, I was wondering what you guys were going to play because I was thinking of uh, Mayor's speech where he's asking all of the um, staff to uh, uh, take a lower pay cut. And it feels to me like there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, today in what uh, mm -hmm. uh, Fincher is working with here, right? There is this ominous you know, thing happening outside of our day-to-day -day lives that we should be paying attention to. There are liars amidst the artists who are potentially going to make the, the thing uh, that tells us about it. But there's also this deep um, disillusion and disinterest in what is actually happening. Um, and I find that to be both very true as a person who makes art and sometimes wonder like, why does, does no one see what's happening in this world? Why aren't we addressing this work in our art? Um, and also the, the, the sheer incredulity of, of the reality. And, and that felt really, I guess, if I'm, if I'm finding what I felt was honest in, in the work, that felt really honest to me outside of the man um, that's at the center of it, which is yeah, fascinating. That I, I agree with that totally, Tanisha. I think that that is something really important and really relevant to our current times. I was listening the other day to the story of the two high school students in Louisville, Kentucky, who had uncovered the training manual for the Kentucky State Police, which contained mm -hmm. direct quotes from Adolf Hitler, among other things that I won't go into, but it was really shocking to hear and also not surprising in some ways, given what we've been going through the past few years. And I think that this, uh, I found that conversation that takes place in San Simeon about uh, what's going on in Europe to be very much a reflection on what's happening now. And I, I think that um, the connection with Hollywood and, and the whole creation of art that really ignores what the reality is of the world uh, it's, it, it's countered by a film like this that actually sort of, you know, it, it, it zeroes in on the sort of atmosphere that hangs around while a film is being made. 
and I think there are so many contemporary connections to this. The uh, the, the 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 sudden uh, move at the behest of AT and T for Warner Brothers to push all its films on streaming, uh, the mm. one studio that was thought to have integrity about filmmaking. Uh, all of these things, to me, that's one of the exciting things about Mank is that I have the the strong sense that David Fincher has a real uh, a finger on the pulse, and so there's a lot of other things that are coming out through this film. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. I love, Go ahead. I was to say, you know, I love that you sort of made that pivot towards the the platforms. It seems so very clear to me that Fincher is aiming himself towards uh, uh, an, an Academy Award here, right? In a, in a way that Scorsese seemed to say, this is beneath me, I won't do this. It feels very, very much like he uh, wanted to create this on this platform, on Netflix, which, you know, has has appeared as sort of a juggernaut in, in uh, prestige films. Um, and, and it feels very much like he, he aimed to make a prestige film, which I think may be working against the biography of the human inside of it. Um, and I, and, and I know Fincher, you know, he makes prestige films. That's like his, that's his thing as an auteur. But I wonder in this particular case, if that aesthetic stood in, in front of storytelling in some ways, I don't know. Yeah, that's such an interesting question. To me, I feel like there's so many effects and movie magic kind of moments, and he <laughs> is so interested in making a movie movie of mm-hmm. of of now, and also with homage to the great movies of the 30s and, and 40s, in particular Citizen Kane. That I feel like he's sort of it's the movie. Sometimes it's a little bit of a jumble. Sometimes it's like a horror movie. Sometimes it's like a a film noir. Sometimes it's a you know zingy comedy of guys coming up with a movie and then there's this whole you know uh, not to spoil it but the, the sort of end of the uh of the sinclair 1934 gubernatorial campaign what it does to that guy and the missing bullets it's sort of like wait what movie are we in here um so i feel like he's throwing so much showmanship at it sometimes <laughs> at the expense of sort of basic what's this movie about and and yeah. and i think he, he would say probably no, but that's the whole point. We're do it's a cinnamon roll, and you keep you know unspooling it and unspooling it to get at the essence of the man. Give me a break, you know. What <laughs> I want to know is if, if secretaries actually wore pasties. Is that a real? thing? <laughs> this is what I want to know. <laughs> I, I um, one of the things that I was struck by. I'll anybody who wants to respond to this. There's a way in which maybe a little bit differently from Citizen Kane. I think the difference is two of the differences. Uh, just to go back to Nick's original point that this is kind of uh, a Citizen Kane, but about Herman Mankiewicz. First of all, I think Citizen Kane is so much about the primal wound, right? It's so much about, you know, the the wound that cannot be healed. And and I think in the case of Mankiewicz, we don't really see that. We know that he's a, you know, troubled and wounded guy and a, a guy who's struggling with just, you know, terrible, terrible alcoholism and kind of a general dissipation. But we don't see what that is. But to me, the other thing, and and it really intrigues me based on all the stuff that you guys have been saying, too, is there's a way in which it's sort of anti-myth making about some of these figures. I, I think Hearst is brought down to earth here. Uh, Charles Dance, the first time we see Hearst, back to my monster movie theme, he looks like Freddy Krueger. He's got the same kind of hat on and he's got these kind of sunken eyes and this pallor. <laughs> but, you know, he's not a particularly impressive guy. Louis B. Mayer, I think, is intentionally made to look like Rudy Giuliani. And he's kind of this kind of hunched over, snappish little guy. There's a way, 
Nick, maybe I'll direct this at you. There's a way in which I feel like a little bit of the myth-making that's done about some of these legendary uh, figures of Hollywood and media in the 30s. I think Fincher intentionally lets the air out of this a little bit, but that also could be me projecting. No, I think you're right. I think he is trying to sort of humanize some of those those guys, although I, I in particular, I feel like, you know, the big question I have is I don't know how you can really follow or understand this movie without an intimate knowledge of Citizen Kane and the, the movie world of the 1930s. Mm. I mean, that that uh, San Simeon scene, which I've now seen three times and heard this fourth time, I, I it's very hard to follow who's talking and it, am I supposed to know that that's Norma Shearer? Am I supposed to know that Norma Shearer is with Irving Thalberg? Am I supposed to know who Irving Thalberg was? <laughs> it's just like, uh, it's fantastic if you know, and if you love all this stuff. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm surprised. I mean, my cousin, Ben, who, you know, hosts this TCM stuff for a living, he said when he saw it, he was like, I don't know who in the world is going to see this movie. Who Who is going to want to, other than if, you're, if your last name is Makowitz, <laughs> then yes, okay, I get it. But I, I, we're, I think we're all in the family sort of amazed by the fact that this is actually a mainstream Hollywood film. It's so much more like an art film. Tanisha and I feel a lot better now. I think that that, that lies at the core of what is happening to filmmaking, I think, and also the nature of how uh, this can be seen. I think you can sit and watch it as an entertaining film and not know all those things. But if you are uh, if you are really intent on finding out what the real characters did and who they are, you can go and delve into it afterwards. But that is a very different experience from sitting in the theater and seeing it. And I'm reminded of the social network, David Fincher's social network, which mm-hmm. I just saw again recently and realized knowing what we know now about what uh, Facebook has become, um, that film is incredibly prescient in its creepiness and Mm. in really sort of delving into the characters. And I think, I mean, I sat with an audience um, uh, and watched that. I remember when we showed it first at Cine Studio and you did get the feeling that a lot of people didn't really understand what is this about, you know, and it seems it puts forth a very basic thing about, uh, you know, that this was a means of checking out the babes at college but it had a much more sinister, uh, sinister quality that lay behind it. And in Mank, the sinister nature of Hollywood, and 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 for instance, somebody like Louis B. Mayer, who was a thug and a bully who ruined people's lives, he made a lot of money too. And I think that the intimation of his character in this film is right on. Um, and there is a horror film quality because these characters who did these things, and including Hearst were people who did real damage to real people's lives. And they, they, they created an illusion that that wasn't the case. All right. We're, I think we might have to stop there, although I would like to keep talking a lot yes. more about this. Yeah, Tanisha. Yeah. Yes, that was so good. That was really good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, great. the Social Network is a horror movie, and you know, I mean, you know, James, right at the beginning when he's walking across the Harvard campus in the darkness and there's that crunchy, you know, Trent Reznor or whatever it is, guitar music in the background. It, you think like this is Zodiac too. whoever is doing, they're going to go kill somebody right now. This person right. whose point of view you're seeing. Uh, all right. We're going to go take a little break here. Say that again. Well, I was say, and I and and I think what James helped me understand is like I now I understand because I was the kid in college when the social network was 
being unrolled. I actually know the people in the room, unlike with uh, Mank, and that's and like and that's the doorway for why social network hits for me in a completely different way than Mank does. So uh, that that just totally uplifted so much for me, James. All Thank right. you. All right. Uh, so I guess Nick's going to go unless you're dying to talk about Godfather Three. But it's been I great haven't to- seen it, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm dying to hear what you guys say about it, and I'm eager to see it. One thing I just do want to correct, yeah. Tanisha. I never met Herman. Herman died 12 years before I was born, yeah. and. <sighs> So this movie, but my cousins, another of my cousins said to me, same thing I feel, which is like you go into this movie thinking, well, maybe I'm going to get to know my grandfather. You come out thinking, well, that was someone's grandfather, but it wasn't mine. <laughs> Definitely not mine. Beautifully put. All right. We've got to take a break here. Tanisha and James will be back. Thanks to Nick Davis, a filmmaker and author of Competing with Idiots, Herman and Joe Mankiewicz, A Dual Portrait. When you see Mank, you'll see where that title comes from. Uh, and we'll be back. At me, smartest in the room. I did it all my way. No, what am I to do? So as you can tell, we're about to talk about the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical Oklahoma. No, we're talking about the Godfather. That's a Godfather theme. You know that. The God- so Godfather 3, The Godfather Part 3, came out on Christmas Day 1990, I am told, 16 years after The Godfather Part 2. Uh, and, you know, for its pains, it was, in fact, nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards. But, I mean, it is widely regarded, I think it's fair to say, as just a colossal failure, uh, something which so... Uh, egregiously failed to extend the magic of the first two movies uh, as to be almost an insult to all the fans of said movies. And uh, what has happened now is that uh, Francis Ford Coppola uh, has uh, re-edited the movie uh, and retitled the movie, and he is attempting to get us to watch it again. And in the case of me and James and Tanisha, he has been successful in that regard. So let's hear a little scene uh, from uh, what is now called Coda, the Death of Michael Corleone, or whatever it's called. Uh, This is a a meeting with a corrupt archbishop, Archbishop Gilday. Uh, You'll hear, hear, of course, Al Pacino as Don Michael Corleone, and George Hamilton as B.J. Harrison, who's apparently now kind of his conciliary. This isn't a question of one person deciding, one deciding vote. This is like any other company in the world. We have directors, we have rules, but we have very old rules. Pope himself would have to approve you. We've sold the casinos. All businesses having to do with gambling. We have no interests or investments in anything illegitimate. Corleone is prepared to deposit $500 million in the Vatican Bank at such times Mr. Corleone receives majority control of Immobiliari. Immobiliari could be something new. A European conglomerate. 
Few families have control of such a company. It seems in today's world, the power to absolve debt is greater than the power of forgiveness. $600 million. All right, so uh, where to begin? I, I guess maybe, Tanisha, I'll start with you. Um, I, I don't know because of your uh, youth exactly what your relationship would be to the Godfather uh, trio or maybe the original one and two. So just sort of just tell me where you are in all this. Uh, what was your feeling about the, the first two movies and, and then how do you feel about this? So I have no feelings on the first two movies because try as I might, I have never been able to get through them. But I don't think that's because of my youth. I think that's because of uh, my gender rep- my gender presentation because I know many boys, male presenting people who adore the trilogy one, two, and three, who when I said to them, I'm going to watch the coda, they thought, there, there's no new, there can't be a new Godfather. I said, there is, there cannot be a new Godfather. Well, who's in it? And I said, it's the same cast. It was like, this this is an impossibility because the three represent something so real uh, for people who love the Godfather. So that's sort of like, I, I am not a Godfatherite. I have tried because I understand that it is like a core, iconic American movie trilogy and I should know it. But I just, for some reason, can't. But I actually like the coda, and I will correct you. <laughs> um, you know, Francis will tell you that this is that title of this movie is the proper title for the yeah, third I know, yeah. movie, uh, and, and that the one that he made that he messed up on was not the movie he wanted to make. And I think I'm as much interested in this film precisely because this has clearly been a craw for him since it was made. Um, that he needed to go back to. And I intimately understand what that feels like as an artist. And so I, I stuck with him and with it precisely for that reason. It's a very cool perspective, actually. It is not my perspective, but it's a very cool perspective. So James, well, I mean, you know, James, just say whatever you want to say. I'm not going to ask you a question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say, I agree with what Tanisha just said. I mean, I I actually had that attitude to it too. Um, it's interesting. This clip that you played was a very interesting one. I was thinking, knowing what um, what uh, anybody who's read what was going on with the uh, Vatican Bank and stuff like that, I was wondering, you know, who was buying who in that particular scene. But um, I agree that you know this film is. I didn't expect to like it because I thought, oh, this would be a chore to see this again, and I I didn't particularly get into it when it first came out. But I must say, I enjoyed it as a very entertaining film, number one. And I also thought that it was something, oh, it just so made me ache to see it on the big screen in the dark. Uh, It just brought back to me how we have to save, you know, big screen movies in the dark. That the streaming um, doesn't show the sort of lushness of that photography and the incredible costumes by Melina Cananero and and all of these parts of the film that make an incredibly entertaining story. And I found it very satisfying as a standalone in itself. And I I, I know I, I'll probably get leapt upon for this, but I actually actually liked his daughter in. In there and I, I thought that actually that I reassessed that performance that um, uh, I, I thought that uh, she really 
she was playing herself in a way, but that was interesting in itself. So all in all, I, I this was I'm so glad we got to discuss this film because it, it opened a door for me. Yeah, I, I first of all, I think Sofia Coppola is the least of the problems with this movie. I, I think, you know, in many ways, I feel it's a badly written movie. Um, and I think the other thing that I feel very strongly, which I communicated to you guys earlier today, is there's a way in which it kind of violates a basic premise and kind of compact between the creators of the first two movies uh, and, and this one. At the end of both Godfather movies, really, Michael is this frozen man. He, in a way, belongs in the company uh, of uh, of of Kane uh, from Citizen Kane and 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 maybe Gatsby and people you know who've wound up frozen damaged they've given up too much to get what they have you know and there's just a sense in which he is now in this prison it you know it's Lake Tahoe spattered with this kind of ugly gloomy looking snow and he's this incredibly cold unreachable man and that's what he has paid uh, of himself to get where he is and now like you know Al Pacino in this movie, he's kind of this kind of mischievous little grandpa kind of guy who, you know, surprises Diane Keaton by, like, you know, being in the chauffeur's uniform when she gets in the car. And then he goes, guess who's your driver for the day? Hey, it's me. I'm this fun guy. Let's dance. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. It, it is such a violation of what I think is kind of the profound moral lesson of the first two Godfather movies. I, it, Colin. And I, I'm not sure I agree with that, really, because okay. I, I do think that actually what the, the this third part is about is coming down, is coming from, away from the reality. And the, the, the actual nature of those first two movies, particularly the first one, was sort of like raising an American mythology and uh, these uh, movie characters and this sort of massive illusion of uh, where, you, you know, a sort of entertainment version of some of the worst aspects of what lies behind power and control in this country. And actually, the Godfather 3, to me, presents him, as, presents Corleone as a, as a character who's, like, he's let down, he's deflated, he looks deflated, and yet there's all of this bloodshed and mayhem going on around, the family that is so totally dysfunctional, and really in the control of all of these young thugs who are, competing to take over and i think it's an almost um it's almost a reflection by coppola that that brings in his own sense of himself and the 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 whole nature of uh, making apocalypse now for example and then that film sort of being such a bitter experience in terms of its distribution and in terms of whether people get to see it in a version that he wanted um i think it's very interesting in many many ways i just don't really buy into the sort of mythology of those first two films ah well that may yeah i mean first of all i'm very happy to be in the minority in this conversation because i think people piling on godfather 3 the first time around or this time would not be all that interesting and i guess tanisha the the, the question that i have i mean i think you really raised a fascinating angle on this this idea of the artist who wants a second crack at something that didn't work the first time uh, i i I worry that the material is so fundamentally damaged. And I think, speaking of Herman Mankiewicz, by its writing, there's a scene with Michael and Kay, uh, Al Pacino and Diane Keaton, sitting at a table kind of talking through their differences and bad things that have happened in the past. And she starts crying and saying, I don't know what you want from me, Michael. And, and then they talk about how much they actually really kind of love each other. And I was thinking, if I, if the couple at the next table, back when we used to go to restaurants, 
was having this conversation, I would not want to eavesdrop on it. It's just not a very interesting way uh, to portray a, a relationship. But Tanisha, maybe I am just kind of exactly the kind of guy you were describing before who over mythologizes the first works. Maybe. And I, I also think, you know, because I don't have an intimate relationship with them, I and I think I'm pretty good at sniffing out writing that feels untrue. Mm. For me, it felt like a real relationship. It may not be satisfying for an observer, but it felt real for that couple. And I don't have, you know, a, a prior knowledge of how they operated beforehand. And quite frankly, for a moment, I confused the prior ones with Scarface, which my uh, watching partner <laughs> like, no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I thought that was Michelle Pfeiffer. <laughs> Get out of here with that. Um, but I, but for me, you know, I think the relationships the relationships rang true. And I, you know, before I watched Coda, I sort of was reading up on the other ones so, so I could have some kind of sense of what I was getting into. And I did read about, you know, how Sophia was sort of panned in the original, in the uh, Godfather 3. And I actually thought she was quite lovely and quite, and very much a, a teenager. And uh, that kind of awkward sexiness that an 18 year old carries with her was so present and so honest. Yeah. And I wondered, were we, for something in her with different eyes that we wanted her to be a fully formed sexual being, right? And that feels, you know, well, also, untrue to also a person who is part of the conspiracy. Right. And also who is making sexy time with her first cousin, but we don't even that, have to. Right. I, yeah. That, which is a very complex situation. But, you know, I was thinking of that, that conversation at the table that seemed so sort of like, uh, really? I, I was thinking um, maybe somebody could be paid to be a fly on the wall on January 21st when um, uh, the oh orange menace and his wife are sitting at breakfast. Oh, no, she'll be on a plane to Slovenia by then. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't think there's I don't think there's any breakfast happening on January 21st. Well, James, I just I, I'm going to sort of tap into the cineast in you uh, and say there, there, another question here is like these idea, this idea of filmmakers kind of messing with their canonical films, you know, and I mean, uh, Coppola has uh, done it a lot. Uh, McPants is telling me there's like three versions at least of Apocalypse Now, right now, but Lucas and Spielberg uh, do it too, mess around, re-edit, release another version. Um, and, and it, I, I guess, uh, does, does that bother you at all? I mean, should there be some kind of stability where, the, you know, this particular movie is the movie that has that title? Well, I, yes, in a way it does. I mean, I, I think of uh, somebody like Christopher Nolan who who argues so strongly uh, his... his uh, uh, his ideas in a film like, say, Interstellar, I can't imagine him coming back and being credible, sort of changing that in some way that that then uh, complicated the ideas he was trying to talk about. Uh, I think that to a certain extent, reworking your earlier works and bringing them out in new versions, I mean, there has to be a role of money in this too, that you get paid again to release the film. But it's, it really goes to the heart of what is an artistic enterprise. But the artistic enterprise of movies is being so nibbled away at, or really not, is being bitten away at, um, with everything from artificial uh, changes, things that like what George Lucas did with Star Wars and all of these things that change the nature of the artwork. And I'm thinking nobody would tolerate that if it was a Rembrandt. 
um, you know, an artist who was confident in what he created, he's not going to come back and sort of repaint it. He might make a new painting. You could make a new film. But taking the original thing and recutting it and sort of making out that, oh, this is the real version I wanted to make, that's a kind of license that doesn't fit quite for me. You know, and Tunisia, go, go ahead, go ahead. Like, isn't that the story of the Mona Lisa? Like, isn't isn't the mythology of the Mona Lisa that there's like 17 versions of it? And so, you know, the one that sits in the Louvre is is a, is one version. Um, but the artist was consistently trying to to get to the right one. I mean, right. I think, that, I think that's, film- that's like perfection, perfecting something that perfecting your art. And so if you went back and then remade a film like you remade Citizen Kane, for example, because you wanted to make it in a different way, it becomes an art object in itself. I think that that's uh, that's that's acceptable. I see that as being okay. Well, if you have a better idea, let's see it. Right, and Tanisha, I also feel like I'm hearing the theater person talk here because that that is the story of theater. Tomorrow night, you know, stand still for one beat before you fall over dead. You know that like every single time you do a play you have the opportunity to slightly or maybe even significantly reimagine it, right? For sure. And I also think you're hearing a theater maker who is now uh, being asked to make things for the screen and me as an artist going through what that process is. And I can't tell you, there's not a thing I've made in the past six months that I wouldn't want to, to do a re-edit on and a, re- and a reshare. Um, and, and sometimes it is a fundamentally different um, art piece, but sometimes it's looking at it again and knowing that you can because of, because of the medium, wanting to refine the, the storytelling. And I think that, that, that may not have been a, a feature in movie making precisely, you know, in when Citizen Kane was being made, because it was so stinking expensive to do that. But I think now that technology kind of allows a filmmaker to, to continue to tinker, I'm actually curious about the iterations um, when you're not tied to finances of what, of what a picture could be, because I think, this is Tanisha, the artist talking, you know, I've discovered that the more I watch it, the more I learn and the more I live, the more I want to um, be more true to what I think the, the, the thing is supposed to be doing. Um, and you're right. It, I think I think it's the hybrid that I'm becoming of a theater maker and a person who's making something that that is um, that can be iterative um, for the screen. All right, we have to go to a break right now. Uh, that was really fascinating, though. Uh, and we'll be back with more. Okay, a little short on time. Got to thank Cat Pastor for being in the studio, making this whole show happen the way it needs to happen. And Jonathan McPants for producing this episode, as he pretty much always does with the nose. Uh, our guests are James Hanley and Tanisha Dugan. They're going to make some recommendations to you right now. Tanisha, uh, maybe you can go first. I'll go first, and I only have one. Um, I'm going to uh, endorse a, a group called The Classics, C-L-A-S-S-I-X. Um, they are a collective of six Black playwrights, directors, uh, actors, dramaturgs, uh, who are taking Black classic plays and reintroducing um, them to... 
to all of us. Um, classic, C-L-A-S-S-I-X. Uh, founder is Awoye Tempo, who we're working with right now, and she's fantastic. Um, but this initiative they're doing that sort of... Uh, elevates and like I said reintroduces um, some really important playwrights and stories that have been lost um, is exciting me right now and I uh, encourage you all to engage with them in any way you can. All right and James how about you? Um, well there's a great book I've been reading my favorite author I think I have recommended the earlier works of hers. Elena Ferrante has a new book out uh, called Lying Adults. Um, it's not a massive uh, three four volume uh treaties like uh, her previous work, but it's an amazing book. I found absolutely riveting about it really going into uh, a, a, a young girl growing up, becoming a teenager and becoming an adult. Uh, Elena Ferrante's book uh, called Lying Adults. And one last thing, uh, just related to uh, my experience watching Mank on the big screen. I am so, so moved by seeing a movie on the big screen again. And I just have to say to people, be patient. You will be able to have that experience again. It's so important to support that all over the world that filmmakers make films that get seen in an extraordinary environment that is unique and that everything isn't streaming. All right, uh, very quickly, because James usually does this. Yeah, go ahead, really fast. Black Futures by Jenna Wortham and Kimberly Drew. It's a beautiful coffee table book, uh, imagining what we are, what black people are doing now, and also what we will be looking to do in the future. Black Futures, Kimberly Drew, Jenna Wortham. You should totally pick up that book. Okay, Sorry. so J James usually does this, uh, so I'll do it now. Uh, I will say that even here in the bleak midwinter, you can get Connecticut food that's kissed by the Connecticut sun, Four Mile River Farm. If you're a carnivore, they are at a lot of different winter farmers markets. City Seed in New Haven is keeping the farmers markets going. You can go to individual farms like Sub Edge in Farmington or the Farmington Farm Truck. And... You can get the milk delivered to your house if you live kind of in certain places. It's only for certain. They haven't. They don't have a huge territory right now. But there's something called the modern milkman, and I now have milk delivered to my door just like in the old days. I'm old enough to remember it the first time around. It's very exciting. I get milk and cheese and eggs and yogurt and all kinds of stuff. Anyway, Kat's telling me we got to go. Uh, thanks very much for listening. We'll be back on Monday with a scramble. I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.